Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. We're joined this week once again by a couple of regulars. Uh, of course, our managing editor, Anna Gowell, is with us. Hey, Anna. Hi, Raj. Great to be here. And we've got Jonathan Glennie back with us. Jonathan, uh, nice to see you again. Hi, Raj. Hi, everyone. So, Jonathan, you're, of course, the co-founder of Global Nation, and I think people know you for a lot of your writing and research on all things related to poverty and human rights. It's great to have you, especially this week where we're talking about the, the big meetings that just wrapped up. In fact, I just returned home uh, from Marrakesh, Morocco, and Anna, I know you were there too, uh, where the World Bank held its annual meeting. You know, normally uh, an important diplomatic affair, but this year probably had a, got a lot more attention than usual because of the big shifts happening at the bank, the reform effort, and of course the new president, Ajay Banga, uh, how, how was it for you, Anna? What, what were some of your main takeaways? Well, I think one of my main takeaways is that Ajay Banga is very much on point, on message. Um, you know, you he's got a very clear vision. He wants a better bank, a bigger bank. He talks a lot about, um, you know, inputs uh, instead of talking about inputs, outputs like girls going to school. So you'll be hearing a lot of the same sound bites, I suspect, in the months ahead. But certainly the consensus that that I heard was that a lot of the sweating of the balance sheet, additional lending is a good start. But again, all roads lead to whether there'll be a capital increase from shareholders, and there's no sign of, of that occurring anytime soon. Jonathan, you uh, you know the World Bank well, and you've seen this um, evolve. What's your, what's your feeling about this evolution roadmap, as they call it, and how how uh, the president of the World Bank is actually executing against it. My, my, my view on the bank is a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a naysayer on this. I mean, I, I think there needs to be tons more international public money, both grants and loans for the things we care about. Clearly there's this trade-off between, uh, or possible trade-off between climate and poverty reduction that we might talk about. So I'm massively up for world banks, but we have to recognize that this is also about power. You know, when you look back at the history of the banks, it's not always been by any means, and this is an understatement, a force for good in international development. If you speak to African governments that lived through the 80s and 90s, I'm here in Bogota, Colombia, you speak to Latin American governments, the way that the money of the bank and the fund, the, the IMF, were used to implement particular uh, uh, approaches to economic growth and development, which many of us and many governments themselves that had to go to the bank for help were, were wrong in, in hindsight. Um, you know, I was actually quite happy during a period about 10 years ago when the World Bank was diminishing in power and other forms of development theory and approaches were coming to the fore to do with the rise of China, to do with a fairly healthy economic um, uh, outlook, even in Africa uh, and other parts of the world. So this kind of let's make the bank bigger and, and more powerful doesn't sit well with me. There is a voice, there is a change in the voice and governance, a serious change in voice and governance 
which doesn't seem to have happened so far. And I'm interested to hear what Anna, uh, whether, that, whether that came out of Marrakesh. It didn't, really. Um, when you look at IMF, um, there was, I believe, another seat on the executive board given to Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, but, I did see that, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't uh, really mean that they have more of a say over decision-making. There was talk of uh, increasing quotas, but proportionally. So essentially everyone gets an increase in quota. It would increase lending. But again, it goes back to African countries wouldn't necessarily have a, any greater say in decision-making power. And right now their quotas are very minuscule compared to a lot of Western countries. So I think there's there's disappointment if you're looking for actual hard poverty alleviation. Um, it's important to remember that the World Bank is a bank. Um, their loans, even though maturity... The maturities are so long and, and they're loans that countries wouldn't normally be able to get on the capital markets are still loans and need to be repaid. And in terms of debt relief, that's been very slow and we didn't see much of that. Yeah, there was a deal announced for Zambia that was kind of widely telegraphed that that would happen. Um, but it did happen at these annual meetings. But I think your your criticisms, both, you know, both of you, the, the issues we hear are valid. But I also think the era we're in is just so different. You know, like we can wish for more grant funding outside of these kinds of traditional MDB models. But the truth is, I mean, look at the, the U.S. Congress, look at the U.K., uh, aid budgets are going down, not up, you know. And, and that's one of the reasons, probably the main reason why the MDBs are suddenly so much in focus, because the idea is, look, these are kind of underutilized instruments. And they might have a history that was mixed, but, boy, in a, in a new era where climate and development are so deeply connected and there are so many climate related projects that have returns, financial returns, you know, you can invest in something that you get paid back on like renewable energy, that we kind of need these institutions, we need them to be bigger, we need them to be more effective. But I, I think the concerns you lay out there, Jonathan, are real, I hear them from lots of the sources I talk to. Um, and I think they are amplified in a way right now, because of the new vision that Ajay Banga put forward that was, you know, that was uh, ratified essentially at this year's annual meetings, uh, about the bank having a mission for better development on quote-unquote a livable planet and the sense from some governments especially low-income governments is well hang on a second does this mean those projects that might generate more returnable capital things like you know solar farms are those going to go to middle-income countries and kind of sap the resources of the bank and then us in the low-income countries that just have you know more basic traditional poverty alleviation needs that we'll end up with fewer resources. So I think there is a there's a real active debate and and the global south right now, in part due to the geopolitics happening, the war, Russia's war in Ukraine and the the rift with China, the global south definitely feels like they are being left out of the discussion in a way. And we've heard that from a lot of people, including Ajay Banga himself, that we need to pay attention to this. And Raj, just a quick note too, that something to keep an eye out now that the meetings are over is the IDA replenishment, which we haven't talked about. Um, that of course is International Development Association. It's for mostly grants for and concessional lending for the poorest of the poor countries. That's coming up for mid review in December. And that you can't really sweat the balance sheet on. You, you, you can only do, even Ajay Banga has said, so much financial wizardry. It relies on, on capital coming in. And so far, the signs haven't looked too promising, but it's something to keep an eye out when you're really talking about the poorest of the poor. 
Yeah, I think so much yeah. is going to depend on how the politics of all this, you know, rolls out. Like this is a presidential election year we're coming up on in the U.S. We're just about one year out from the 2024 election. Um, we don't have a Speaker of the House in the U.S. You know, in the U.K., you're likely to see a change in government, right, Jonathan? And, you know, we interviewed the uh, Rob Merrick, DevEx's correspondent in London, interviewed the likely uh, new head of FCDO's development agenda who said, yeah, don't expect us to necessarily go back to 0.7% of gross national income as our budget target for development. Um, so, you know, so much when you look across Germany, just cut their humanitarian budget. I was just in Germany yesterday. They cut their humanitarian budget by 40% for next year and their development budget by 5%. Those numbers are still being finalized in their budget process, but these are pretty significant cuts. Norway and Sweden are both looking at, at significant cuts for next year. So, so much I think will depend on how the politics in major Western donors plays out as we, as we get into the lead up to that Ida replenishment, Anna. Yeah, exactly. And we actually had a story from Rob on, uh, once again, we've discussed this, uh, you know, a lot in terms of that a lot of what counts as official development assistance, ODA, is uh, uh, one one NGO group called it a lot of hot air. It was not just uh, Ukrainians, counting Ukrainians, domestic refugee costs, but also certain private capitalist aid, and it was a lot of iffy. And it really found that uh, about one-fifth of EU aid is is not really what we consider traditional ODA. So that also adds to the complications. Yeah, that's yeah. right, Jonathan. This is an issue you've been working on a long time where you think about this idea of global public investment, right? Like how do we reframe this whole space? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how this is evolving. That's right. I mean, the, on, the, on the ODA definitions, it's not, you know, this has been a deal for a long time. Again, it's, it's about power and voice. I mean, the people that define what ODA is, despite it being a kind of a UN 0.7% was a UN agreed target, but the people that defined what counts as the 0.7% are the OECD government sat in Paris. And that's where you get these kind of anomalies where, where huge amounts of ODA is currently refugee costs. But the, big, the bigger picture is there's no serious analysis that says we can save our world uh, in terms of climate and poverty reduction without huge amounts more international public money. There is a political analysis, and you're right, Raj, that the current context is really, really poor for that and could even get worse uh, over the next year or two, which is just kind of desperate to even think about. But there's no analysis that says we can do it just with loans, uh, not particularly concessional loans, and with private money. So, you know, in, in, in you know, 100 years ago, if you'd have said, um, you know, we need twice as much money spent by the national exchequers of Europe and North America, uh, people would have said that's no, impossible. You can't go from ten percent from of, of GDP to twenty to thirty percent, which is where we are now. If in the nineteen forties and fifties you'd said, you know, Europe needs to build a a a system whereby there's large scale transfers of money to support poorer countries of the EU club at the time, the, the European Community, you know, people would say, oh, impossible. All of that's happened. So we need to actually make continue to make the case that, and yeah, the politics is not great, but we need to make the case that there is no future for us without large amounts of international public money and much, much more grants. We can't deal with climate as well as poverty reduction without huge amounts of, uh, uh, of money. Um, and there's no getting away from that. Um, and what we need to do clearly is to get the analysis right first, 
And secondly, to build these what are going to need to be large public campaigns, especially in the global north, but all over the world, to make that case. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a certain math to this that you can't argue with when you look at the projections for what climate is going to do. And I do think it puts a lot of the advocacy world in the global development space in kind of a challenging position. You can see this even in, in Sophie Edwards, our reporter's piece about kind of the outcomes from the World Bank and IMF annual meetings, where a lot of the advocacy groups are telling her, look, this is nowhere near enough. We need, you know, substantially more funding. We need a capital increase. We need the IDA replenishment. We need the bank to, to get bigger faster. We can't wait on this. But in a way, they're preaching to the choir because, you know, those of us in this space, including some of the, somebody like President Banga, would love nothing more than to see, you know, more funding going into this, uh, into this area. But we're dealing with these domestic political realities that are really challenging you know, maybe as challenging as we've ever seen them. Um, and it's almost a bit of a vicious cycle where, you know, the climate gets worse, that leads to more migration, the migration gets picked up on by right-wing populace as a reason to cut foreign assistance, you know, going to other countries, uh, as well as assistance for refugees inside their own borders. So it, we're in this something of a vicious cycle. And as you, I think, rightly say, Jonathan, we need a new way of thinking and talking about this. We need a new public conversation, not just a conversation within our space, but, um, you know, a conversation with, with the voting public and the taxpaying public in a lot of these countries, because this will come back to haunt us if we don't figure this out. There was a moment in time when the wealthy countries of Europe were persuaded that it was in their interest to put huge amounts of money on the table to build, first the, to help build first the south of Europe with large scale grant funding and then the east of Europe with large scale grant funding, tens of billions a year. That, that, there was a time that the public were persuaded of that, or at least the, politi the politicians made it happen. And you're right, it feels like that case is just it, it really hard to make at the moment. I think one of the fundamental differences is that the case we make for aid still relies on this idea that we're helping them over there. And therefore, when things get tough, charity restricted to home, and there isn't money for that. But the European case, and I'm sorry to go back to this, I'm a European and I know more about it, but it's true to some extent in Africa as well in other, in other regions. The European case is made on self-interest. It was in Britain's interest, France's interest, Germany's interest, the richer countries of Europe to spend that money. So we have to make the case, and this is where your global public investment narrative comes in. We have to make the case that it's in our interest. You know, I would love us all to be, you know, you know, saints and Gandhis, but we're not, you know, we're, we're motivated by self-interest. So we have to make the case. That, that, that this extra spending that is needed is in our interest. And, and, and we're miles away from that at the moment. We're not winning on that. Yeah, and I think it is also, we have to acknowledge, more complicated than just more money. It's also how we spend it. You know, and, and as we cover often at DevX, like there, it, it gets complicated when you think about the, especially the political economy realities on the ground and just the way we spend the funding. Of course, we've been covering a lot of localization as a theme, right? So can you actually get the money in the hands of people who should have the power and voice to use your words, right? To actually direct where this funding goes in part because it'll be much more effective. It'll actually lead to better development. The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevX, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevX Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. 
Each Wednesday, DevX Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devx.com slash newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. We had a story this week from Colm Lynch, our reporter who covers um, all things global and especially the UN. And uh, Colm, you know, has this exclusive on the situation in Yemen in terms of food aid, which I think points to the fact that, yeah, money is one of the key factors, as he says in the story. But the other is the way you deliver the aid and the political realities, the kind of geopolitical implications of it. Maybe, Anna, you can just give people a flavor for that story. And I'd love to get into a discussion about it. Yeah, sure. Um, It's it really almost seems like a contradiction. The Biden administration is withholding food aid to feed the hungriest in Yemen. This is kind of a, um, as Colin puts it, a diplomatic hardball, uh, hardball tactic um, because the Houthi rebels have long used aid as a leverage to reward their followers, punish their, their detractors. Um, now, according to the World Food Program, there's still some aid coming in. There are some monitoring systems, but they themselves admitted that they may put a pause on aid, uh, depending on how the negotiations with the Houthis go. And I think it raises a lot of thought-provoking questions. You know, are we ourselves kind of uh, maybe weaponizing is too strong a word, but are we using aid to get a desired outcome, no matter how noble that outcome may be? But it's important to remember that Yemen is is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. Um, and I think looking at the bigger picture, it's a pretty sad reminder that World Food Program, and this goes back, Jonathan, to your point in terms of um, donors and the public stepping up, that uh, the WFP is having one of its uh, biggest shortfall budget short, shortfalls since the post-COVID era, and they're having to ration to the less starving. So that's really an indictment of how sad the donor picture uh, is. Yeah, just to round out that that picture from the story, you know, there are these two ships, cargo ships, holding food aid from the U.S. that are docked, you know, in one in the UAE and one in Singapore, and they've kind of been there since August. Um, and so it seems to be, although this is what, you know, Colin was trying to get to in the story, it seems to be like a signal being sent to the Houthis that, look, this food is being held, you know, right now, as you have an important negotiation with the World Food Program, sort of show, hey, look, the World Food Program um, has the backing of the U.S. on trying to negotiate for better conditions for delivering aid. And so far, no aid has been suspended. People are still getting their aid. And it's, it's, the numbers are kind of incredible. It's a quarter of the population of Yemen. And it's over 9 million people that rely on food assistance through WFP. And that quarter of the population just gets 700 calories a day. So a very small amount of food. And of course, there's a spectrum of people there across these 9 million. You know, some might get some additional food elsewhere. And so this supplements them and lets them get to a place where they can have sufficient calories. For others, this might be the only thing they get to eat. And so the stakes are really, really high. And WFP is saying, given the funding pressures that we've been talking about today, they think it might be better to feed fewer people. So maybe reduce it from like nine and a half million to 6.6 million, but give them more calories. So try to identify the people most in need and give them a little more food than they're getting right now. Um, and it's highly political because the Houthis apparently are taking a lot of that food and directing it for their own political purposes, including using it as a recruitment tool for child soldiers. So 
this is a, a, a kind of a perfect story in the sense of how complicated things get when you actually look on the ground. You know, at a very high level, it sounds easy um, and, and clear, and there are obvious reasons to do this kind of work. And when you look close to how things actually play out on the ground, it, it sure gets complicated. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this story, Jonathan. Yeah, no, I, I read this story. I didn't know about it. And it does. It, 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 it's one example of, of millions of examples around the world where yeah, delivery of a transfer of money cross-border is incredibly difficult. And I think two things stand out, and you've mentioned them both. Firstly, if you haven't got the politics right, or if you haven't got some kind of political settlement whereby aid can be used um, usefully, then it's gonna, you're going to really struggle. I and mean, we, we may talk about Gaza later. But it, it's just, it's there may, there may be similarities, and then uh, you know, and, and sometimes aid is used as a sop. I'm not suggesting that it is in this case. Maybe it is, but where where you don't deal with the politics, but it's like, oh well, you know, well we haven't we haven't dealt with the really important stuff. Well, here's a few hundred million, and that I think probably is happening in Gaza at the moment. And then the other thing is you mentioned is, is effectiveness. You know, we have to be able to make the case that. Not everywhere, and there will always be stories that hit the front of the Daily Mail, probably not the front of Devex, but maybe. But, the, but you know, there will always be stories of, of, of poorly used aid that can be used by people that want to undermine the international public finance. Um, but we have, to make, we have to make a convincing case that overall, despite percentages that get lost to ineffectiveness or corruption, overall, the majority of this money is making a difference. And if we can't make that case, then, then yeah, we're gonna we we won't see the replenishments and the increases that we need to make. And it, it is difficult to spend public money. It's difficult even at the national level, uh, let alone at the regional uh, and global levels. So we also have to kind of, I think, and it's quite hard, but we have to educate somehow um, our public and our politicians to understand that you know it's difficult, and there will be stories that happen that uh, uh, demonstrate um, loss of, of 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 aid money. But that doesn't undermine the overall push for, for more. I mean, there's there's a wrinkle to this story that's particularly challenging. Um, and I think it points to the reality in a lot of places. So, you know, this was not the first time that the idea of stalling or pausing food aid was put on the table. It was actually paused in the past few years ago during the Trump administration. But, you know, in order to restore it, the Houthis agreed that the UN would roll out a biometric identification system so we could track, well, who's getting the food and is it really the people who ought to get it. And WP has a whole system in place for, for calling people. They've got a hotline. It's really trying to track down the reality of people receiving the food aid they're supposed to get. Uh, well, now they've had to stop that biometric program because they don't really trust that data getting in the hands of the Houthi government itself. Um, so there's a more complicated story here. Like when we think about this at a very high level, we're talking about often um, you know, at DevX and on conversations like this, how there are new, more effective ways to deliberate that include using biometric identification and, you know, be, being much more tech and data driven um, and localized. And, and it just sounds great at a high level. But once you actually look at individual cases like this one, and in this case, you've got a big geopolitical angle because Iran is backing the Houthi rebels. We now have, you mentioned Gaza, the prospect of a wider war, hopefully not, but the prospect of one in in the greater Middle East in which Iran might be involved and therefore the Houthis might be involved, right? So uh, suddenly these relatively straightforward development and humanitarian questions start to look a lot more complicated when you get closer to the ground and when you consider these the, the geopolitics. And I think that's why what, what Anna's question about, you know, even if we think there's a greater good here, the decisions are being made and the aid is being used in a political way. 
and therefore all the more important for pushes for, for things like the global public investment approach or basically multilateralism, whereby as much as possible, you can never get away from bilateralism, you can never get away from, from countries using their power, but to, as much as possible to, to allow such difficult decisions to be made by a group of countries, peers, a multilateral process, the UN process, so that to some extent at least these decisions are being made in a fair and equitable way and not, not seem to be. Um, associated with particular political positions. Yeah, and very hard to get to that. I mean, look, the WFP is a multilateral institution. It is a UN institution, but most of its funding is, you know, quote unquote, voluntary. And the US is by far its biggest funder. So, you know, the, the, the major donors to the agency have a lot of sway and voice in this. And it's not so easy as to say they're just giving the funding on some kind of a, an annual budget process that they don't look at and they don't, they don't care about how the money is spent. They're they're very engaged, the donors are. So, you know, you're right with, with where we want to go. The global public investment sounds really compelling, but boy, there's a big gap between here and there. Um, and anything else on this? I want to get to, to a couple other stories that we published this week. Yeah, I think one of the main things we've been covering a lot is the uh, pandemic treaty draft that's been, the negotiations have been taking place. They're going to be ongoing for the next few months, well into next year. But I think what's interesting is no one seems to be happy with them, uh, whether you're talking about um, advocates or big pharma. Um, there's a lot of deep divisions, especially over intellectual property waivers, uh, which isn't too surprising. The advocates say that the wording in the, the treaty draft is, is weak, has too many loopholes. And then on the flip side, you have pharmaceutical companies who are opposed to almost well, any kind of link language because they claim that, excuse me, IP waivers stifle innovation and that, you know, they argue that a lot of the inequities during the pandemic were due to trade and export restrictions, uh, which would come as a surprise to, to many who feel it was because wealthier countries hoarded COVID-19 vaccines. Um, so really, it's about it will come down to enforcement and compliance. But it's important to remember, we've got a lot of misconceptions that this is going to infringe on the sovereignty of nations and so forth. But it's really not. It's about cooperation. But at this point, it looks like it'll be more voluntary cooperation than anything that's enforced. Jonathan, did you have a chance to see this story? I'm curious if you have yeah. a view about it. Yeah, I did. I did. I'm going to summarize it for you. Um, mega wealthy corporations insist on maintaining their huge profits. I mean, it, 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 I mean, of course they say that. I don't even know why they're involved in the discussion, to be honest. I mean, obviously, this is, this is the position they're going to take. This, this needs to be governments and peoples taking a strong stand to insist on quite well-evidenced positions that, 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 that the requirement for IP in the way that it's currently organised is not a necessity to deliver the drugs that we need around the world. And I, I was interested by one of the quotes from a guy called Thomas Quaney, who's the Director General of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Associations. And he said, it'd be better to have no pandemic treaty than a bad pandemic treaty. Well, that's something I totally agree with him on. But I mean, we definitely don't want a new pandemic treaty that, that, that fails to tackle this huge issue of intellectual property. Because again, it comes down to power. You know, it's no good having great drugs if the majority of the world are unable 
to take control of them and use them for their own purposes. And the next time a pandemic rolls around, if we're in the same situation, and I mean, actually, there was quite a lot of good stuff that came out of the pandemic response that I think we should celebrate as a world. But, there, but, but fundamentally, it just, it rose back to the top, this clear uh, inequality of power. And I think African uh, governments and Latin American governments and Asian governments are just totally fed up with the idea that they have to ask for this stuff. Um, it, uh, this was a great opportunity to 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 make real progress in internationalism, and to and to and to and to undermine the, this kind of huge power and wealth that's grown up in the farmer industry. And if that doesn't happen, I think this will be a huge failure for our world. I find this to be such a fascinating topic because you know I talk to ten people and I get twelve different opinions about it. <laughs> I mean, I. I uh, you know, I remember Bill Gates during the during the pandemic got in some real hot water because he basically came out and said, you know, the problem has nothing to do with IP transfer. And he got such a backlash for it that he eventually kind of moderated his his statement on it. But lots of people I speak to, you know, behind closed doors will say, yeah, this IP thing is more of a symbolic issue than a real one. And their argument is that in the end, what stops the development of drugs in other parts of the world tends to be things like manufacturing capabilities, skilled workforce, and not really so much whether they have the legal intellectual property right to do it, because you can even look at things like generics and how how even they, they are not developed, even very generic medicines that have been off patent forever, there's no IP issue, and they're not being developed in lots of places around the world. So it's more of a an industrial problem, a commercial problem, than it is an IP problem. But again, I hear leaders on both sides may give me very impassioned views <laughs> that are completely opposite on this. And I find it a really fascinating question to what degree uh, this is truly the real issue or is it kind of a symbol for the much broader inequality that we see in the way the, the health and, and drug industry is actually organized? Anna, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, no, I think... Um... Jonathan, this would certainly bolster your case. We also had a story about how 20 of the world's largest, uh, I think, I believe it was 20 largest pharmaceutical companies uh, made the same number, almost the same number of payouts to their executives and shareholders as they did invest in research and development. So you have a lot of NGOs using those figures to say, listen, there's plenty of profit to go around. Um, and because of that, certainly you can waive some of these IP, um, uh, you can have IP waivers and not uh, jeopardize innovation. But as Raj said, it is, it is a very nuanced issue. And there are, there is the case to be made that in order to embark on, on R&D early on, that, that pharmaceutical companies aren't necessarily guaranteed profits when they, they, they do this. But it certainly didn't help uh optics the that revelation at the world health summit in berlin yeah i had one source talk to me recently saying that you know of course we need to get to a point where there is at least regional production of things like vaccines right so the next time we have a pandemic we're not left in the situation where africa was waiting on indian vaccines that didn't come because india got hit by the delta wave you know so we need these at least regional it's not gonna be in every country but um, it can't just be, you know, controlled by a few countries around the world. But on the other hand, the source says to me, well, we haven't even gotten down to the basics, things like masks or other personal protective equipment. We talked about that during the pandemic. It's still not being manufactured 
regionally and all over the world in a way that is resilient uh, in case we, we get the next pandemic. And, and again, according to this person who's pretty knowledgeable at the space, they were saying, if we get hit with another pandemic now, we'll have the same issue we had with PPE this time that we had last time, which is kind of shocking given how much simpler those things are to produce than let's say vaccines or other drugs. Well, I think we may have just about wrapped up on time here. And uh, I was giving you two a second to see if you wanted to jump in on anything I just said. Any other final thoughts from you, Jonathan? Um, well, I mean, I just think a, a quick thought on the Gaza situation, which, which, which is, which is um, obviously in all of our minds at the moment. And just this, you know, I've been writing about aid for a long time and for a, for a long time in, uh, in, in Israel and, and the occupied Palestinian territories, aid has been used as an excuse not to deal with stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of international public money uh, and the need for it, but I'm also aware that it can be used as an excuse not to deal with the politics. It's, it's been that for a long time now in that region, and it seems to be that way again, where instead of calling for a ceasefire, which is so obviously the right call at this moment, the US has vetoed that call at the UN and instead is offering money um, as the bombardment continues, which is, I think, uh, I, I'm afraid to use this word, really quite grotesque and a misuse of the, of the great thing that is international aid. So I think it's important just to put that down. Well, to Jonathan's point, the USA did just offer $100 million, but if you think about the fact that the, the main crossing, the, the Rafa crossing has yet to be opened, it's just promises of cash at the moment um, because there is no aid coming in. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's partly what President Biden is there trying to negotiate. Um, and I guess Rishi Sunak is on his way too. Uh, it is a horrific situation. I mean, it is. And at the end of the day, it's it's children. It's, you know, young people and innocent people who are caught on both sides of this. Um, we have a story from our own David Ainsworth that's worth checking out if you, um, you want to know more about what aid organizations are trying to do in Gaza right now, uh, called What's Next for Aid Organizations in Gaza, that really kind of lays out uh, who are the players? Where is the funding coming from? Um, and obviously, it's a story we will stay on top of here at DevX and continue to report on. I want to thank um, Jonathan Glennie, my colleague Anna Goel, and all of you for joining this week in global development. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Raj and Anna. Thank you. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.